let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, Lord, we're here once again and we're grateful and thankful for the opportunity to open up the bread of life. Lord, we want to eat from Your Word and we need wisdom. And so we're asking that the Holy Spirit guides us into this issue of Israel and prophecy. Give us greater understanding, Lord, than we've ever had before. Help us to see Your Word clearly. Help us to understand it in a way that that You can just speak to each heart because You know what they need to hear, Lord. And so I pray that you would speak to each individual and make it as simple for us as possible. We like things done simply. And Lord, our prayer is that at the end, we would understand you. We would understand your word in a way like we never have before. And we're asking for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, our topic tonight is Israel and Prophecy Part 2. And if you were here on Saturday night, you heard part one. And for some of you, I would imagine that you really liked it. And then there may have been others who you just thought, you know, just too many numbers, right? Or just there's so much information there that you really couldn't process at all. So I just thought that I would take a moment tonight and just say this to you. When it comes to Bible prophecy and uh, a seminar like what we are doing here, you never really know who's going to come out for that. And so there may be some people that come that have been studying the Bible deeply for years, and then there may be others who have never really read much of the Bible. And so what do you do? Uh, Well, I'll just tell you that as a speaker, you just kind of aim for the middle, and you hope that you'll bring some understanding to some, and you won't uh, have people that are so bored that that they stop coming, but you want to try and reach everyone, and so you just kind of try and meet that middle place. But there are some people that when it comes to Bible prophecy, um, it's really best if you have a little bit of a background into Bible prophecy, and you have a little bit of understanding of Bible prophecy, And what I mean by understanding is that you have current understanding. And what I mean by current understanding is you have the popular understanding. In other words, there are people today that are looking at Bible prophecy and they all have a a very similar view of how things are going to play out at the end of time And you've heard me talk about the popular view that many have today, and that's called futurism. Now, let me just go on record here right from the beginning and say to you that I believe that there are a lot of really good, God-fearing Christians who believe that futurist view. And so I don't have anything bad to say about those individuals until and actually I'll tell you I used to be one of them I used to teach that futurism view but I just feel that I have a greater understanding of the Bible now and so I want to point to people that have that view where there is error and point them to what the Bible says about end time prophecy and so I just wanted to uh, bring that up to you and uh 
and point out that the reason that we have a seminar like this is to help people understand, right? And to set you free uh, when it comes to the truth and following the truth rather than what uh, certain people are teaching. And so as we go through this meeting tonight, we are going to specifically be talking about that futurism and what people are teaching and, and what they believe uh, and what I believe not to be true. I think the Bible very clearly shows that that view is not right and I want to try and bring that out to you. But I want you to know that I'm not pointing at any individuals and saying, you know, you're wrong. I'm just saying I think that the Bible points to something different and let's look at the Bible and let's see what the Bible has to say and let's draw our conclusions from the Bible rather than what we may have already heard. And, and, and the same thing was true when we looked at the Antichrist, right? I told you that that, that was a corrupt religious system. We are not talking about individual Roman Catholics. And the same is true tonight. You know, When we're looking at futurism, I'm not pointing at any individuals and in what they believe. I just want to point to the Bible and let's see what the Bible has to say. Now having said that, let's start off by looking at uh, an overview of what futurism teaches. And I'm going to give you a very basic description of what that belief is. And that starts with the rapture. There are people that are teaching today that there is going to be a rapture. Now, if you look in the Bible, you will not find that word. But what you will find is that there is a uh, time when people are going to be caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the air. And that actually is what rapture means, to be caught up. And so when they're saying that there's going to be a rapture, they're just saying people are going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. But what this futurism view teaches is that Jesus coming at that point is going to be a secret. And that He's going to steal away His believers like a thief in the night. He's going to come and get them, and then all of a sudden... The next day, people are going to realize, hey, where did all the Christians go, right? And they're just kind of left behind, if you will, kind of wondering what happened. And that, in, in this futurism view, they believe that that's what kicks off the seven-year tribulation. But you remember how we talked about that on Saturday night. That was that last week of of that 70-week prophecy that they say goes all the way out to the end of time. And so they have this rapture, this secret uh, coming of Jesus, and then that kicks off that seven-year tribulation period where this man comes on the scene who's very charismatic, who kind of tries to bring everybody that's kind of been left behind, those who may have been in the church, may have outwardly been doing everything right, but hadn't made a commitment to Christ and really uh, didn't have that relationship with Him. And then there are non-believers, and then there were the Jews. And so they're all kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And He kind of just brings them all back together. And He makes uh, an agreement with the Jews that they can start sacrificing again because their belief is that if they want to get right with God, they need to start making those sacrifices again. And so, in order to do that, then there has to be another temple. 
right? In order for them to do that. So he gives them permission to build a temple. And then he makes this seven-year treaty. And halfway in between that, he goes into the temple and he sits down and he says, I'm God. No more work, no more sacrificing animals. You gotta worship me. And then that's when everybody realizes, oh, this guy's not a good guy. This is the Antichrist. And that just breaks out in war. And all of these armies come together and surround Jerusalem. And then you have this war called Armageddon. Okay? And so that's a very simple view of what futurism teaches. And, and there are probably other aspects of that that you may have heard. You may have heard things a little bit differently, or you may not have heard about that at all. And that's okay too, because if you uh, later on decide to go to a religious bookstore and get a book on prophecy and you start reading about that kind of stuff, then you'll know where that came from. But uh, I want you to, to have an understanding of what that means. So that's kind of a, a summary of futurism And at the end of that seven years, then there's going to be another coming of Jesus. And then He will take those who kind of got it right during that time. They had a second chance. And now He's going to take all of His true believers up with Him into glory. And then the Jews are also all going to be saved. That's part of that futurist view. And so tonight, I want to expose that teaching And let's see uh, the reasons why I believe that the primary foundation of futurism is not true. And I hope that by the time we're done, we'll see that directly from the Bible. You won't see that as just what I believe, but you'll see it for yourself. So let's begin talking about Israel in prophecy. And you'll remember that Saturday night we discussed that Uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 and that was called the 70 week prophecy and uh, we saw one one key thing that we learned in that study was that there are actually two Israels right not just one but two and I hope that you remember that if you weren't here you can get the CD and you can get the notes but there is the Israel in the flesh That is the nation of Israel, those who are of the heredity and genes of Abraham. And then there is the Israel in the spirit or spiritual Israel. And they are the ones who have the faith of Abraham. And I'd like you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Paul has to qualify what Israel he's talking about? That's because there's two Israels, right? There's the Israel in the flesh and then there's spiritual Israel. And so he's making a distinction of who he's talking about. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, he says this, And my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. So so clearly here he's talking about the Israel in the flesh. But then in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 through 16 he says, "But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for in Christ Jesus neither 
circumcision. Now I want to stop here for a minute. When the Bible talks about a group of people who are of the circumcision, who is it talking about? The Jews. And so he says, for in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor who's the uncircumcision group? Gentiles. So there's neither Jew nor Gentile avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the what? The Israel of God. And so here now he's pointing to another Israel, right? He starts off talking about the Israel of flesh, and now he's talking about the Israel of God. And so there's two Israels. You have the Israel uh, of the flesh, who is the nation of Israel, the heredity, the genes of Abraham. And then you have the Israel of the Spirit, or the Israel of God, which is spiritual Israel, those who have the faith of Abraham. In other words, the Israel of God is both Jew and Gentile who have faith in Christ. That's the Israel of God. And he makes that point well in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, everyone that is of Israel is not necessarily the Israel of God. It is only those who have the faith of Abraham. It is only those who have surrendered their life to Christ that are the Israel of God. And just because you're of the Israel of God doesn't mean that you're the Israel of the flesh. You, you see the difference? You can, you can be the Israel of the flesh and still not be the Israel of God. It's only those who have surrendered their hearts to Christ. I want to go into this a little further, so turn with me to Romans 9, and let's look at this, and we will start in verse 6. We'll look at that again. It's going to be page 1302 in your seminar Bible. Romans chapter 9, and let's start in verse 6. The Bible says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And this creates a bit of confusion for many Christians when studying Bible prophecy, in the, especially in the last few years, primarily because the overwhelming number of Bible prophecy teachers today have their sights on the nation of Israel as ground zero for apocalyptic zealotry. But we need to remember something. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Right? My personal conviction is that there are many things in the Bible that are clearly literal that people are trying to spiritualize or make symbolic. And then there are many things that are clearly symbolic that people are taking literally. Now, let me give you some examples of this. You'll remember in John chapter 2 that Jesus said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple... And in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, do you think that Jesus was speaking to them literally or spiritually? 
spiritually, right? But they took him literally, didn't they? They, they were looking at the temple and they said, it took 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was talking about His body. He was talking about the crucifixion. And He said, basically, if you destroy this temple, which your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible tells us that. And He was telling them that He was going to raise rise up in three days. And so He was speaking spiritually but they took, took him literally. And then there was a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, you must be born again. Did, you, did he, Nicodemus take that literally or did he take it spiritually? That's right, he took it literally. He said to Jesus, how can a man be born a second time? How can he enter into his mother's womb once he's been born, right? But Jesus was speaking to him spiritually. He was saying to him, you have to be born twice. The first time of the flesh, the second time you've got to be born of the Spirit. And, but they took him literally. And then there was the woman in John chapter 4 at the well of Samaria. And you'll remember that he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and the one that speaks to you, that says, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? Now, did she take him literally or spiritually? Literally, yes. She said to him, you don't even have a jar and the well is deep. How are you going to get this living water? Right? But Jesus was talking to her spiritually that she needed the living water that He could provide that would bring her to eternal life. And then you have Jesus talking to the people in John chapter 6. And he says to them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he goes on to say to them, and you're going to have to eat my flesh. Now, do you think they took him literally or spiritually? They took him literally. They started complaining. Oh, this man is telling us we have to eat his flesh. And the Bible says that from that point on, many people stopped following him. But he wasn't talking literally, he was talking spiritually. He was talking about the fact that he was going to lay down his life for mankind and we needed to uh, partake in communion of his sacrifice for us. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 63, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, he's saying to them, you got to eat my words, right? you got to listen to what I'm telling you. I'm speaking to you about spiritual things, but you keep taking things literally. Now, let me show you why I think that there are a lot of people, even today, who are taking those things literally when they shouldn't. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 you're in romans just go two books to the right it's going to be page 1328 in your seminar bible and uh, and we're going to start in second corinthians chapter 3 and go uh, from verse 12 notice what the apostle paul says to us therefore since we have such hope we use great boldness of speech Unlike Moses, we put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, one turns 
when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What he's simply saying there is that there is a blindness that people have when reading the Old Testament because they don't realize that all of the things that are done there are pointing forward to Christ. But once you understand that Christ is the Messiah, once you understand your need for a Savior, once you've uh, surrendered your life to Him, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence on the inside of you. The law of God is written in your mind and in your heart. And now you... Uh, understand that Jesus was the one that paid our penalty for us. Now when you go back to the Old Testament and you look at those lambs that were being sacrificed, you realize that they were pointing forward to Him who was the ultimate sacrifice and now you can see it. And so it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, right? And so the veil is removed once you recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. That's really what he's saying there. Now, I also have to say that there has been a history of people that are taking things literally that should have been symbolic. And let's take a look at some of those. Uh, If you think about uh, Revelation chapter 1, it says that Jesus was walking amongst the seven candlesticks, right? Now, as soon as you read that, what does that make you think of? It should make you think of the Old Testament in the sanctuary service and that seven-branch candlestick that was in the tabernacle in the holy place, right? And so here you have in the Old Testament a real literal thing that's being spoken of in the book of Revelation. But then if you go to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so what was real and literal in the Old Testament is symbolic and spiritual in the book of Revelation. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 2, uh, Jesus sends this letter to... Uh, his, his, he gives this information to John who is supposed to forward this letter to this church in Thyatira. And G- Jesus b- basically rebukes them for allowing this woman Jezebel to seduce his servants, right? And then if you go back in the Old Testament, you see that there was a real literal woman by the name of Jezebel who was married to King Ahab, who was a very wicked king. But she was even more wicked than he was. In fact, she led many people of Israel into idolatry. So does that mean at the end of time that there's this woman Jezebel who's going to be raised from the dead and is going to come and going to corrupt God's people and His church? No. What was real and literal in the Old Testament is symbolic or or spiritual in the New Testament. And so this is just speaking of this evil influence that or this evil movement that is going on with God's people. It's the same spirit of Jezebel, right? And so it's real and literal in the Old Testament. It's it's symbolic and it's spiritual in the book of Revelation. Then when you go to Revelation chapter 3, you see this uh, letter going to Philadelphia in which Jesus says that the believers will become a pillar in the temple of God. 
Now, there's this real temple in the Old Testament that had many pillars, but does that mean that a person, in, 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 when you give your heart to Jesus, that now you're going to become a pillar? You're going to be a part of the building? And well, you have these eyes, but you can't move. You're holding up the building, right? No. What was real and literal in the Old Testament is now spiritual. And what that means to be a pillar in the temple of God means that you've given your heart to the Lord. You uh, are growing in faith. You are becoming a really good example to others. And then you ever heard someone say, yeah, that that person's a, a pillar in the church? That means that that's a person who has experience in the Lord, someone who is a good example, and they're uh, there to help others to grow up in the Lord. And so what was real and literal there is spiritual and symbolic in the New Testament. And uh, we, we can see those examples, both of people that took things literally that should have been symbolic, and then people taking things that were symbolic as, as literal and vice versa. Then later on in the book of Revelation, when you go and you see that it's talking about a river Euphrates, right? And you'll remember that in the Old Testament, there was a literal river Euphrates that's still there today in the, in the country of Iraq, that that river went right through what major city? Babylon. And so you see both that river and the literal city of Babylon in the Old Testament, and you see them spoken of in the New Testament as well. And then when it talks about uh, in the book of Revelation where the river Euphrates is dried up to make way for the kings of the east, does that mean that that river is going to dry up? You remember in the Old Testament, it was a real literal river, and you'll remember that the Medes and the Persians, the king Cyrus, dried up the river and then they went in and they basically captured an impenetrable city in one night by doing that, right? So does that mean that it's going to happen again? That the river Euphrates is going to dry up? No. Because when you go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, it clearly shows you that the waters that you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so what was real and literal in the Old Testament is now spiritual or symbolic in the New Testament. And so then when it talks about Babylon in the New Testament, we think about that real literal city in the Old, right? But remember what God said. That Babylon would be destroyed and never raised up again, right? And then we talked about how uh, Saddam Hussein tried to do that, but he was fighting against the Word of God. And so does that mean that there's going to be a real literal Babylon at the end of time? No, it's being spoken of spiritually or symbolically, and it represents this apostate church that is run, you know, uh, both church and state combined, and that city or that that Babylon is is being spoken of spiritually and figuratively. And so then when it says that that the river is dried up to make way for kings of the east, we, we go back and we look at what was real and literal, but we have to make it spiritual and symbolic. And so Cyrus, I don't know if you know this or not, but his name literally means son. And he was a type of Christ who is the Son of Righteousness, right? 
And so when you see this river being dried up for making way for the kings of the east, this is actually talking about Jesus coming with His army, His angels from heaven. Because the Bible says that just like the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus is coming from the east. And I don't know if you know this or not, but that's why if you look at most of the uh, graveyards, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but almost every one of them, the tombstones are facing east. So that supposedly when the dead rise, they're facing the east and they can see Jesus coming. That's not true in all of them, but that's the majority of them. That's why they do that. And so what we see here is what was real and literal there is symbolic and figurative here. And so we need to make sure that we understand those. Now, that means that when we see those kings of the east, that doesn't mean literal Chinese warriors over there in the Middle East, but it's talking about King Jesus coming with all of His armies. Because what you have is you have spiritual Babylon who is trying to kill God's people at the end of time, and that's why God comes to rescue them. And then you have this battle between that force and God, and that's the battle of Armageddon. So we've got to make sure that those things that are literal and real in the Old Testament, we are not looking at them literally in the New. Now, we've got to let the Bible interpret itself, right? We can't be trying to think of those things literally. And so when it comes to apocalyptic prophecy, those things that were local and literal become symbolic and worldwide. That's, that's the difference. And that's, that's going to help us understand that. Now, let's take a look for a moment at the nation of Israel with our spiritual glasses on. You'll remember that while the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, that God raised up a man by the name of Moses, whom He sent to Pharaoh to say, let My people go. Right? Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God said to, to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is My son, My firstborn. So what does the Bible say about Israel? It says that Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. You got that? Let's look at some others. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, it says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. So who did God bring out of Egypt? Israel. And so here it's telling us that Israel is the vine. You with me? All right, let's keep going. Notice what it says in Isaiah 49, verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so here we see that Israel is God's servant. Remember how to study the Bible. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, right? Let's keep putting it together. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Again, this is talking about Israel, right? Then we go to Isaiah 41, verse 8. 
it says, but thou, Israel, art my servant. So once again, we see that Israel is the servant of God. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So here we see that Israel is also the seed of Abraham. Right? Let's look at another one. Then when we go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. And so here we see that Israel is my son, and I called him out of Egypt, right? So let's put, uh, well, notice what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.1. He says, all our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You'll remember that when the children of Israel left Egypt, that they went to the Red Sea, Right? But then Pharaoh changed his mind and he came after them and they were trapped. And so God worked another miracle and they went through the sea. And so what's Paul saying here? He's saying that Israel was baptized in the sea. And then when they went through the sea and they came out the other side, they went into the wilderness. And how long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. So let's put all of those verses together. Israel is my son. My firstborn, a vine out of Egypt, my servant, the seed of Abraham, baptized in the sea and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the biblical description of Israel. Now let's look at some more though. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Who's this talking about? Who's the child? Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that Mary and Joseph took Jesus and they fled into Egypt, right? But notice what Matthew continues to say. He says that they fled into Egypt so that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by the Lord by the prophet. In other words, he's saying the reason that Jesus had to go to Egypt was so that the prophecy that we just read in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 could be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is the one that that prophecy was pointing to, right? Now you might say, well, wait a minute. That's saying in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, it wasn't fulfilled in literal Israel, but it was fulfilled in who? In Jesus Christ. That's right. Jesus Christ had to be called out of Egypt. And it says so that that prophecy might be fulfilled in Hosea 11 verse 1. Well, let's look at some more. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the what? The firstborn over all creation. John 15 verse 1, Jesus said, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Matthew chapter 12:16 through 18 says he wa- he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying behold my servant. And do you remember the promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 15 verse 5 says look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them so shall your offspring be. But then Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice 
that it doesn't say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Keep following me here. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And you'll remember that right after his baptism, what did he do? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 tells us, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for how long? Forty days. So friends, what is the Bible telling us? It's telling that Jesus is my Son. He is my firstborn. He is a vine out of Egypt. He is my servant. He is the seed of Abraham. He was baptized and then He went into the wilderness for 40 days. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of the true Israel. And that's why the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because Jesus fulfilled all of those requirements. And on Saturday night, we looked at Daniel chapter 9. And we saw that Jesus was the one who fulfilled all of the requirements of that 70 weeks of probation. Right? He was the one that met all of the conditions, not the nation of Israel. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, For all the promises of God are in Him, and they are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. In Christ, all of the promises are met. Paul says that it's not that the Word had no effect. That it's that the literal Israel has been replaced by spiritual Israel. And you have a new spiritual father who is Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies. He is the one who is spiritual Israel. And we are heirs according to the promise because we are in Christ, right? Now let's take a look at some texts dealing with Israel as the favored nation of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, it says, I, and this is God speaking, have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. Then in 2 Chronicles 7.16, it says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And then in 2 Chronicles 33.7, it says, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen... I will put my name forever. And so there are people that read those verses and they say, see, God promised the nation of Israel that they would be His people forever. And so how can we say that Israel would ultimately conclude their probation and no longer be the favored nation of God, and yet at the same time, these verses say, that God would put His name there forever. Well, let me show you. I'd like you to turn to the little book of Jonah. Jonah is in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. It's going to be page 1068 in your seminar Bible. But if you know where Daniel is, we've been there a lot. He's the last of the major prophets. Then you get into the minor prophets. And it starts with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. So Jonah chapter 3, and we will start with verse 1. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, What? Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so here we see that God sends His prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh, and He says, I'm going to tell you specifically what to say. You tell them 40 days, and you are going to be taken out. But what happened? The Bible tells us that the whole city repented from the king on down. And notice what it says there in verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He said He would bring upon them. In other words, God didn't do what He said He was going to do. And that's because sometimes the prophecies of God are conditional. And what I mean by conditional is there are certain conditions that have to be met in order for that prophecy to go through. Now, let me show you exactly how this applies to Israel. Turn with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. It's going to be page 82 in your seminar Bible. Notice what it says starting in verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, what's the next word? If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, what's the next word? Then you shall be a special treasure to Me above all people, for all the earth is Mine. And so here is the condition Uh, that is required to be met for Israel to be God's special people. He says, if you keep My commandments, if you obey My voice, then you will be My special people, right? And so there are conditions that are required for the nation of Israel to be God's favored nation. Now, there are many people that believe the single most important prophetic fulfillment in recent history was May 14th, 1948. Anybody know what happened on that date? That's right. That's when Israel was was brought back and became a nation again, right? But I want you to realize what was going on in 1948. And we have to remember that before 1948... It was 1940 through 1945. And what was happening during that time? World War II. That's right. And you remember in World War II that Hitler was killing the Jews by the millions, right? And so now in 1948, now there's this compassion for the Jews and there's this movement to try and bring the people back into the land. And many people believe that that regathering of Israel is evidence that God is ultimately working on their behalf. Uh, And so that must be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy with the gathering of Israel. And now let me show you 
a little bit about that gathering of Israel and what the conditions were for that. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You're in Exodus, just go three books to the right. You go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then you're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's going to be page 237 of that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice here what it says in order for Israel to be regathered back together. What was the condition? Starting in verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the cursing which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so here we see that what happens here in Deuteronomy is Moses is near the end of his life and he's basically just recapping everything that has happened since he has been the leader of Israel. And so he gives them again the Ten Commandments and then he starts going through all the things that God has said and he reminds them that if you obey God's voice and you keep His commandments, you'll be His special treasure and He will bless you. But if you don't, then He's going to scatter you among the nations of the world and take away your heritage. But even then... God is merciful. God is compassionate. If while you are scattered among the nations, if you turn your heart, what are the conditions? Look at verse 2 again. It says that they need to return to the Lord their God and obey His voice with all of their heart and their soul. Right? So that is the condition that is required for being regathered as a nation. Now, we see that several times in the Bible. Let me give you another one. I'm not going to take you there, but you might want to write this down. Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 8 and 9. I'm just going to read it to you. Nehemiah is praying. And he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What's Nehemiah saying? He's praying to God and he's saying, Lord, you promised that if we obeyed you you would bless us but if we didn't you would scatter us and that's exactly what has happened they have been in babylonian captivity for 70 years but now they've been set free by the persians and they've gone back and nehemiah is praying and he's saying lord you promised us that if we gave our hearts to you and that if we obeyed you that you would bring us back in the land so we're claiming that promise do it And then you have people that believe that because Israel's rebirth as a state is a direct fulfillment of prophecy, but I ask you, how could it be that the nation of Israel could have been regathered by God in 1948 if they had not turned their heart to Him, obeyed His voice, and turned to Him with all of their heart and soul? Because they are still in rebellion, aren't they? 
they have not surrendered to Jesus as the Messiah. And so they're still in rebellion against God. So how could it be that that was a fulfillment of prophecy? It's not. Now, I want to give you another example here. You remember that Moses sent the spies into the promised land, right? And you'll remember that they came back with a faithless report, right? God had promised them that He was going to give them the land. But they went in and they spied out the land and they saw the giants, they saw the obstacles, they saw all the difficulties, and they came back and they said, we can't do it. You remember that? Yeah. And so they did not have faith that God was going to do what He said. And notice what Numbers chapter 14, verse 32 and 34 says. Basically, God was upset with them because they had no faith. And they said to Him, You brought us here and we're going to go into the land and we're going to die and our children are going to die. And God basically says to them, No, your children are going to go into the promised land, but your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness and you shall know my breach of promise. Now that's the King James translation. I really like the way it says it in the New King James. It says, you shall know my rejection. In other words, what God is saying to them is somebody hasn't kept their promise here. And what do you think? Was it God or was it Israel? We have to go back to the Old Covenant. God calls Moses up the mountain. And He says to him, I want to make a covenant with my people. And He orally gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And He says, if, if the people keep my commandments, then I will be their God and they will be my people. And so Moses goes down the mountain. He says to the people, God wants to make a covenant with us. He's given us this law. And if we keep it, He will be our God. And what did the people say? All that the Lord has said, we will do and obey. Right? They promised that they were going to keep the commands of God. That they were going to trust God to provide for them. Well, Moses goes back up the mountain to tell God the people are going to do it. God gives them the Ten Commandments. And by the time Moses gets down, they're already breaking the second one. Right? They made for themselves that golden calf. But here we see that God is saying that you shall know my breach of promise. And what the promise was that they were going to obey Him. They were going to trust Him. And so now it's not God that is giving the breach of promise. It's the people. And He's saying to them, you're going to know the results or the effects of your breach of promise to Me. And so then what happened? Numbers chapter 14, verse 40, the people said, here we are and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Now, after they find out their fate, now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, that's right, God promised that now we remember and we'll go do it, right? But friends, what happened? The Bible says that some of the people went to fight and they were wiped out, right? And then the rest of the people had to go out into the wilderness for 40 years and that entire generation died and then God brought the children into the promised land. Here's my point. The Bible is very clear. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, God does not change. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so if God wasn't with Israel when they were in rebellion back then, why would we think that God is with Israel today if they're still in rebellion? Are you with me? Does that make sense? And just because Israel won a few battles since 1948, that doesn't mean that God is fighting for them. Remember what else the Bible says? It says God pours out the rain and the sunshine on the just and the unjust. So just because Israel won a few battles doesn't mean that God has been fighting for them and that doesn't mean it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. It's going to be page 1383 in your seminar Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, I want to show you a couple verses here. We're going to start in verse 39 and 40. Notice what it says. Chapter 11 in Hebrews is known as the Hall of Faith, right? It's talking about all these people that had faith. It says in 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, let's go back, starting in verse 13 through 16, and notice what it says. Essentially the same thing, but in a little bit different way. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a what? A heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And so what this is telling us is that all those people that went into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised them, it says that they did not receive the promise. Isn't that what it said? In other words, the the literal promised land here on earth is not the fulfillment of God's promise. But notice what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the what? The heavenly Jerusalem or the heavenly Canaan. The promise that was given of Canaan was not merely an earthly Canaan, but a heavenly one. And the Jews going back to the earthly Canaan is not a fulfillment of that promise of God. The promise is fulfilled only in the heavenly Canaan. And the Jews could not be regathered when they still reject that Jesus is their Messiah. God is not going to fight for the Jews when they reject the one that He sent to save them. That would be totally different than anything that God has ever done before. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 and 23 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. In other words, who are the promises for? Israel of the flesh or spiritual Israel? 
spiritual Israel. Now let me just give you another thing to think about on this. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 13, that Jesus went into the temple the second time, right before His crucifixion, He went in and He cleared the temple out again. Knocked over the money changers, drove out all the animals, and you'll remember what He said. He said, My house is to be a house of prayer. You remember that? And then right after that, the Pharisees came to him and basically said to him, by what authority did you do this, right? And then he told them a parable. He said there was a landowner who who built a, a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He put a wine press in it. He fertilized it. He did everything that he could. And then he lent that out to vine dressers. But every time he sent someone to get what was due him as the landowner, they sent away his people, they killed them. Well, finally the landowner sent his son, but they grabbed the son and said, let's take his inheritance. And then Jesus said to them, what do you think this landowner ought to do? And they signed their own death warrants, right? They said, those wicked vine dressers should be destroyed. And Jesus said to them, The vineyard will be taken from you and given to another. Right? And then you'll remember that after that, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, that when Jesus went back to the temple for the last time, he said to them, Your house is left to you desolate. Remember that? It was my house originally. But the story was about them. They were the vine dressers. They killed the prophets. They sent them away. Now they were going to kill God's Son. And God was going to take the vineyard from them and give it to another. And so He says, Your house is left to you desolate. And then you go back to Matthew chapter 18 and you look at verse 21 and 22. And that was the time when Peter came to Jesus... And he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And the Pharisees at that time were teaching you should forgive someone three times. And so Peter thought he would be really generous. He doubled it and added one. Right? He said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, no, 70 times seven. Right? Well, you remember that Saturday night we were talking about this 70-week prophecy Then this was the probation that was given to the Jewish nation in Daniel chapter 9. And the Bible says in Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to put an end to sin and to make reconciliation, right? In other words, the Jewish nation was given 490 years to get it right. When Jesus said to Peter, no, 70 times 7, He was pointing him to this prophecy, 70 weeks times 7 days in a week. No, you need to be more generous than that, Peter. You need to forgive for 490 years just like I have forgiven Israel. And then you know at the end of that 70-week prophecy, in 34 A.D., that Stephen was stoned and the Gospel went to the Gentiles. 
Saul the persecutor became the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter had that dream that said that he should not call any man common or unclean. And then he went and gave the gospel to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius and all of his household was saved. There was persecution in Jerusalem. The people were spread and the gospel went to the world. And the favored nation of the Jews was no more. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 21.20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now back to talking about futurism, right? When there are people that believe that futurism theory, and when they look at this verse, they try to apply that to the end of time when that supposed Antichrist sits in the temple, claims to be God, and then everybody goes, whoa, this is the Antichrist, and they all surround Jerusalem. They try to apply it to that. Here's another verse that they use, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, what day is that day? The coming of Christ will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that he is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so this is where people say, that's that Antichrist way out at the end of time and he goes into the temple and he claims to be God. But I'd like you to notice something. I'm not going to take you there for time's sake, but write this down. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. And what that verse says is he who denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. Right? You remember that verse? Now, what I'm saying here is that Antichrist is not going to be fighting against someone who is barring some of the very characteristics of the Antichrist by denying that Jesus is the Son of God. And in other words, think about this for a minute. Think about that futurism view, okay? Where they believe that the Antichrist is going to allow them to build a temple and start sacrificing again, okay? Let's just say for a moment that that's true. Could that temple rightly be called the temple of God? Let me rephrase that question another way. What does it say about Israel if they start sacrificing again? What does it say that they think about Jesus? That He's not the Savior. He's not the Messiah, right? So for Israel to start sacrificing again is a total denial that Jesus is Lord, that He is Savior, that He is the Messiah. And 1 John 2, 21-23 says that if you deny the Father and the Son, you are anti-Christ. And so clearly, Israel starting to sacrifice again, would be a total denial that Jesus is the Son of God. So I ask you, where is God's temple now? Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 tells us, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. 
that whole idea of the Antichrist sitting in the temple at the end of time just doesn't fit, does it? The Antichrist in the temple has to be somebody who presides over the church, who claims to have the prerogatives and the authority of God and the right to forgive sins. I'd like you to notice what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. It says, Paul speaks of some very great apostasy. No sooner was Christianity planted and rooted in the world than there began to be a defection in the Christian church. In other words, what Matthew Henry is saying that Paul said is that that apostasy is not something that happens way out at the end of time, but no more than Christ died and went back to heaven and the church began and error started sneaking into the church, right? Apostasy was there right from the beginning and it just grew from there. Matthew Henry goes on to say, He is called the man of sin, the son of perdition. These names may properly be applied for these reasons to the papal state. The bishops of Rome not only oppose God's authority, but have exalted themselves above God. The Antichrist here mentioned is some usurper of God's authority in the Christian church. And to whom can this better apply than the bishops of Rome? Now I have one more argument that I'd like to show you that futurism says. Turn with me to Romans 11. It'll be page 1305. Romans 11 and verse 26 is a very short verse. It basically says, and all Israel shall be saved. And so that futurism view, they look at that verse and they say, see, all of the nation of Israel is going to be saved at the end of time. And so prophecy teachers are saying that there's going to be this seven year tribulation period way out at the end of time but all of the Jews are going to be saved through that tribulation. But that is a total distortion of the text. I'd like to show you why. Look with me back just a couple verses earlier. Still in Romans 11, look at verse 16. The Bible says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. So what is Paul saying here? He, he's simply saying that the, the Jews that did not believe in Jesus were broken off from the olive tree. And, and it talks about the root. Who's the root? That's Jesus, the root of Jesse, right? And He also is the vine that's being spoken of. And so they were broken off because of unbelief and then the Gentiles were grafted in as they surrendered, accepted Him as Lord. And then He says, so don't be proud about that. Don't be haughty because you were grafted in because just like God broke them off, He can break you off again, right? And, and so here we see that this is talking about spiritual Israel, right? Christ is the vine. He is the true Israel. 
and the Israelites or Gentiles, whoever they may believe, whoever believes in Him, and they give their heart to Him, they become spiritual Israel. And so when the Bible finally says in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel shall be saved, it's talking about spiritual Israel, not physical Israel, not Israel of the flesh. It's talking about both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ, who have been grafted into the root, Jesus Christ, and all it takes is a little perusal of Romans chapter 9 and 11, and you can see that very clearly. The only way that anyone, including the Jews, can be saved is to give their heart to Jesus Christ. He's the only way by which man must be saved. And then you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29, and it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so regarding Israel becoming a nation again in 1948, how could God reestablish them as a nation and graft them in if they have not believed that Jesus is the Messiah? It's not possible. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.29 says and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is no special reuniting of the Jews to fulfill the prophecy of Israel because the prophecy is about spiritual Israel. We are not looking for an earthly Canaan but we are looking for a heavenly one. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. And God has promised some pretty amazing things to us, hasn't He? And He has promised that He is coming again. He promised us a heavenly Canaan. And so I'd like to close tonight by telling you a story about a, about a woman by the name of Doris. Doris grew up in the Lutheran church. She loved the Lord with all of her heart, all of her mind, her soul, and her body. But when she was 70 years old, she went to a seminar just like this. And she began to learn many of the things that you are too. But she struggled with it. She cried for a week because she thought, my church has been lying to me all these years. And then one night she had a dream. And in this dream, she was standing in her living room looking out the front window and she saw a vehicle come up her driveway. And a man got out of that vehicle and he had a box in his hand. And he walked up to her front door. He didn't even knock on the door. He just opened it and came in, walked over to her kitchen table, dumped the contents of the box out, and then turned around and walked out, got back in his vehicle and left. And Doris stand there and thought, Huh, what is wrong with people today? Didn't even knock, right? But then after a while, she was curious about what the contents of the box were. And she walked over and she saw that it was pieces of a puzzle. And Doris loved to put puzzles together. 
And so she sat down and she started flipping all of the pieces over and she started putting this puzzle together. She started with the frame and then she started working on it and working on it and working on it. But it was really hard to put together because the person hadn't left the box. She didn't even know what the puzzle picture was. But she just loved puzzles and she just kept working and working and working. And finally, Doris realized that not all of the pieces that were there belonged to that puzzle. And as soon as she started realizing that, she started setting those pieces aside. And finally, eventually, she was able, through much work and and hard work of, of looking at all these things and trying to put them together, she finally put the picture together and it was a beautiful picture of Jesus. And then she woke up and she said, Lord, what does all of this mean? And the Lord put it on her heart that for her whole life, she had been going to Bible study after Bible study. She'd been trying to learn everything that she could, but a lot of things that she learned in the process didn't belong to the picture of Jesus and the plan of salvation. And friends, the same thing is true of us. Many of the things that you may have learned don't fit the picture of the prophecy of Israel. And they don't fit the picture of Jesus and the plan of salvation. And so my appeal to you tonight is, what are you going to do? Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So friends, I ask you tonight, do you want to receive the promise? Just like the promise of Israel, the promises to uh, to us from God are conditional. They are conditional upon our faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, do you want to meet those conditions tonight? If you do, let me see your hands. Oh, praise God. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, I thank You so much that You have given us the Bible. And Lord, all of this truth is in here. But there's so much other junk that we've gotten into our lives that's just not true. And it has cluttered it up And it has made us almost impossible for us to know the truth. But Lord, we have dug through some of that tonight. And so our prayer is that You would help us to see the truth. And Lord, help us to get rid of those things that we are now discovering don't fit the picture of Jesus in the plan of salvation. And we pray that in the end we would have a much greater understanding And we would fall in love with the truth. And that the truth would set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.